Our, our reading this morning is from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7, and verses 15 through 23. It could be found on page 976 in the Pew Bibles. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, buddy. All right, good morning, everybody. How we doing? I, uh, I'm wearing a tie this morning, and uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm just feeling crazy. I'm just feeling crazy. This is what I do when I'm feeling crazy. Some pastors bring leather jackets or skinny jeans. I just go with the tie. I hope you're feeling crazy this morning because, uh, well, anyway, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, before we get going in our sermon, I want to just draw attention real quick. Uh, I had mentioned last week that we were going to have a book table uh, in the portico and uh, that would just have a bunch of book recommendations on the topic of sexuality and gender. And so there is a table out here just kind of against the old coffee room, and it's got a bunch of copies uh, of some books, probably about 15 to 20 books or so out there. Those are not for taking. They're not for sale, just so you can kind of peruse through, get a little bit of sense of things, and you have to buy your own uh, on Amazon or wherever you buy books. But if you want to see some of the books, you can. I also made a 25-minute like mini book review. I don't know if 25 minutes is mini, but a book review um, video that we sent to you all last week. So if you missed that, you can get that, and that'll kind of give you some details as well about the book. So, all right, let's get into our sermon series and our sermon this morning. We're in this sermon series, For the Love of the World, A Christian Vision of Sexuality. And last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, to help us understand how the Christ-Church relationship is the archetypal reality that informs and governs and makes sense of all human sexuality and gender and Christian sexual ethics. So we saw last week, and this was the point of last week's sermon, that human sexuality is an image or a type 
or a sign. It's an earthly sign that refers to this heavenly archetypal reality of Christ and the church. And so that means that all human sexual conduct, human sexuality needs to correspond then to the image uh, that, is, that it represents, which is Christ and the church. And this framework gives us a coherent vision of Christian sexual ethics. So Christian sexual ethics are not just arbitrarily picked uh, by God or by the church, but they're all brought together in a comprehensive, coherent way to point back to Christ and the church. So our second uh, sermon here this morning in this series works from that same paradigm. So we're going to be kind of in that type archetype paradigm throughout the uh, remainder of this series. And our second sermon uh, this morning is looking at the issue of gender and power. Now, the sad truth is that the history of women writ large throughout time immemorial has been marred by men behaving badly and women in an inherent place of vulnerability with respect to women, primarily related to physical vulnerability. And this physical vulnerability has often led then to other forms of vulnerability, economic vulnerability, legal vulnerability, sexual vulnerability, sexual vulnerability, and on it goes. And all of the feminist movements in our country, and more broadly throughout history and throughout the world, have been animated by the fact that men so often seize upon this vulnerability as an occasion for exploitation. And they use their male power to marginalize or to harm women. So what does Christianity then have to say about this reality, and how does the relationship between Christ and the church help us understand the proper use of power in gender relationships? I'm going to be, uh, as we, so I'm going to be using our text this morning that's been read for us. We have two different uh, passages that are being brought together. We could have done the entire uh, chapter of Ephesians 1, but there's more there than, than we need for the point we want to make. And I want us to imagine the Christ-church relationship as sort of a, a three-part or a three-act play, with each act in the Christ-church relationship representing a key aspect of the Christ-church story. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this three-act play that is Christ and the church, and it, at each act, we're going to draw out some implications then for what each act means uh, in relation to the issue of gender and power. So our first act in the play comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, and look back there uh, in your copy of God's Word, and I call this first act of the Christ church play the sacrificial descent of Jesus. So look at back here in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7. I'll read it again for us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So in this first act of the play, Jesus lowered himself, came down from heaven, and he shed his blood to save us. We, when we were in a spiritual hole, that we could not get out of, when the burden of our sin was towering over us and the shame and the guilt that we couldn't get free of was weighing us down, Jesus came down to where we were from heaven and he met us in our spiritual weakness and he took our troubles upon himself, bearing our sins in his own body, and he secured for us redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And he did all of this 
at great cost to himself, as Paul says here in verse 7, shedding his own blood. He gave his life in order to do this. Jesus entered into our trouble and hardship, took it upon himself, sacrificially suffered and died, and he set us free. In this first act of the gospel story, it's worth pointing out that we down here in our suffering and in our hardship didn't merit Jesus' sacrifice. He saw our need through the eyes of love, and he sacrificially lowered himself to meet our need. So this sacrificial descent of Jesus is the aspect of the Christ church story that probably most of us are most familiar with. And I was working with Greg to try to find a song that we could use for the ending song for the close of the service. Most of the worship songs we sing focus on this first act of Jesus' sacrificial descent down to earth, the bearing of our sins, the enduring of our consequences and our hardships, even to the point of death on the cross. And this is where the whole Christian life begins, which is why we focus on it so much in our worship and in our songs and in the way we tell the Christian story. When we sit down with someone and they ask us, tell me the story of Christ in the church. I don't know if that happens to you all the time, but if someone did, right? Tell me the story of Christ in the church or tell me the story of the gospel, right? This is where we would start, the sacrificial descent of Jesus. If Jesus had not been willing to come down to earth and die for our sins, to give up his life on our behalf, there would be no gospel story. So how does this first act of the play of Christ and the church inform gender and, gender and power? All right, so as we saw last week, what Christ does for the church spiritually is the gold standard for what husbands are to do for their wives physically, or more generally, what men are to do for women. Now, it's important to keep in mind the spiritual, physical distinction that exists between the archetype reality and the type. The typology is not telling us that husbands are more spiritual than their wives, or that the job of men is to sanctify and spiritually save women. Very often, wives are more spiritual than their husbands. And the task of sanctifying both men and women lies with Jesus, who is the spiritual head of both. Rather, the typology is calling attention to the fact that men need to use their greater physical power and all that goes with it to care for and bless women in their earthly and physical vulnerability, even if this means costly sacrifice. There should be nothing surprising at this point because this is in keeping with Jesus' larger ethic on how power should be used. Jesus calls all of us, men and women, to resist the natural impulse to use our power, and all of us have power, right? To varying degrees, varying levels, different social contexts, all of us have some measure of power, and Jesus calls all of us to resist the natural impulse, to use our power in self-protective, self-aggrandizing ways, self-promoting ways, and instead to use our power to care for others, sacrificially if necessary, and especially to care for those who are vulnerable, oppressed, or in need of our help. So insofar as women generally tend to be more physically vulnerable than men, men are called by Christ to share the burden of female vulnerability, and to use their greater physical power in sacrificial ways to create a world that is more hospitable, more just, 
and safer for women. Or we could say it like this. When the ship is sinking, men should give up their seat in the lifeboat to make more room for women and children. Not because men are better at drowning, but because the type, because that type of sacrifice reflects a Christ-like use of sacrificial power. But the idea that men should use their power to help women has fallen on hard times as of late. And not really just as of late. As I mentioned at the beginning, the whole history of humanity writ large is men not always using their power to help women. But I say it's fallen on hard times as of late because in the interest of equality in our culture, our culture tends to dismiss any notion that women are physically in need of men. And now I get this because so often women have been hurt by men, not just physically, but emotionally, socially, sexually, in all sorts of ways. And so our culture tends to downplay the idea that women need the help of men. Wendell Berry, who is a novelist and an essayist, uh, makes this point in one of his essays. And he writes uh, this. He writes this. He says, Women are as human as men. If I dared say, I would say even more so. And they ought not to be denied any civil right. They ought to receive equal pay for equal work. But to say that women and men are equally human is not to say that they are the same. And then he lists four key differences that he sees between men and women. He writes, number one, women are physically and sexually different from men. Two, their role in procreation is immeasurably more burdening, painful, and dangerous than that of men. Three, they are sexually attractive to most men, which is another danger to them because four, most women are physically smaller than most men. And then in the next paragraph, he writes this. In our self-consciously modernizing and improving way, the combination of the movement for women's rights with sexual liberation has encouraged both women and men to regard inequalities of physical power as insignificant or as virtually non-existent. We're encouraged or urged to think that these differences are excuses for, if they are not parts of, a patriarchal oppression of women. As a consequence, the forms of special respect and regard and helpfulness that women often expected from men and that men often gave have fallen into disuse, even as the need for them has fairly demonstrably increased. And Barry is making the point that if we deny the inherent vulnerability of women, we teach men that they need not respect or regard women or extend any kind of particular help to women. And women lose out in that. Women have all sorts of capacity and agency, but the fact remains that the vulnerability of women calls for a distinctly Christian sacrificial use of male power. So his first point is directed primarily to the men. So men, how are, your, how are you using your power? Does your use of power reflect Jesus's self-sacrificial service and care for others? Do you take note of the ways that women around you are often marginalized? And do you actively use your power on their behalf? 
Or if you're married, and not all the men here at Calvary are married, but if you are married, think about this more specifically in relation to your wife. Do you sacrificially descend into places of burden bearing on behalf of your wife? Maybe ask your wife that question rather than just answering it yourself. She might be a better judge about your use of your power in the home than yourself. Or perhaps you find yourself, husbands, holding back the sacrificial use of your power because you feel wronged by your wife. And you don't think that she merits your self-sacrifice. She won't have sex with me, you say, so I'm not helping her with, and then you fill in the blank. She always criticizes me, you say, so I'm not helping her with, and you fill in the blank. And you withhold your help and refuse to sacrifice on her behalf. So listen, men, and this is really a word to all of us, but men, Jesus didn't sacrifice on our behalf because we merited it. If he had waited until we merited his help, we'd all be host. He sacrificed on our behalf because he loves us unconditionally and because we stood in need of his help. And it's his sacrifice on our behalf that empowers our sacrifice on behalf of others. This is true for all of us. We are called to a life of sacrificial pouring out in love for others, but we don't have that in ourselves. We can't sacrificially pour out our life for others without Jesus's sacrificial life being poured into us. So as we embrace his life being poured into us, it frees us up to be able to pour out our lives for the sake of others as he directs us. And that's true for both men and women. So the first act of our three-act play is the sacrificial descent of Jesus. Just as Jesus uses his power sacrificially on behalf of the church, men are called to use their power sacrificially on behalf of women. Here's the second act the dignifying elevation of the church. For the second act, we look at verses 15 through 23. Been read for us. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 18, but Paul tells the Ephesians, who he's not met before, he says, I've heard of you, and I've heard of your faith. I'm very encouraged by it, and I've been praying for you. And I've been praying that God would give you a spirit of enlightenment, that you would know, and then we pick up verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verses 20 through 21, Paul is telling the Ephesians of this immeasurable power that has become theirs when they believed in Christ. It's the same power, Paul says, that God worked in Jesus when God raised Jesus from the dead. But not just raised Jesus from the dead, but all the way into heaven and seated Jesus at God's own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in an age to come. 
In verse 22, we read that this same exalted Jesus, this one who has been raised up, seated at God's right hand, he is the head of all things, of all creation. God has given this same Jesus, who is the head of all things, to the church as a body, the head to the body. God has given the church We could think of it in this way, because I think Paul is setting up what we're going to eventually get to, what we got to last week in Ephesians 5. God has given to the church as her husband, the high king of heaven, the high king of all creation. The language of marriage is not here in these verses, but the language of head and body alludes to that fundamental concept. So this basic idea is at work, and the church... Paul is telling the Ephesians, insofar as it is united to the head, like a body to a head, is united with him in his exaltation. So look down in your text into chapter 2, into verses 5 and 6, or just verse 6. Paul says, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In our union with Jesus, Paul tells us, we are raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. But where is Jesus seated? Jesus is seated, as we've seen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. For the church to be seated with Christ is for the church to be seated with Jesus in his place of dignity, honor, and authority. And the point I want us to see here is how the story of Christ in the church not only tells us about Christ's sacrificial care for the church, that's the first act, his sacrificial descent, but also how he lifts up and dignifies the church into a place of co-dignity and co-honor and co-rulership with him. C.S. Lewis uh, has written an essay called The Grand Miracle, and in the essay, he's talking about the incarnation. And there's a paragraph in particular where he captures the first two acts of the, uh, the Christ church drama. And I, I want to read it for us because I think he's got a very good word picture here. He writes, one has the picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, then flashing for a moment in the air and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water down into the mud and slime, then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm sunlit water, and then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature, but associated with it, all nature, the new universe. Lewis's key insight in this paragraph is that Jesus not only dives down to save us, but he comes back up holding us. He takes us to where he was, where he now is. And this whole idea of the church's ascent and subsequent co-reigning with Jesus is woven all throughout the New Testament. It's really all throughout the Bible, but you can see it most clearly in the New Testament. So when Jesus is talking with his disciples and he refers to them as children of the kingdom, he doesn't simply mean that we are infant children of the kingdom who God takes care of. He means that as sons and daughters of the king, we have a share in the king's royal authority and rule. 
And the Apostle Paul and Peter make this same point in their writings as well. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about how the church is one day destined to rule even the angels. That in our union with Christ and in our exaltation with Christ, we are lifted up into Christ to rule over all creation. And this rule extends not even just over this earth, but over all creation, even the cosmos, even the heavens. And we will rule and judge the angels. And Peter refers to the church as a kingly priesthood, a royal priesthood. But perhaps the clearest vision of our co-rulership with Jesus can be seen in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Let me read this for us. If you've ever read at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, John sees this vision of the world in kind of all its perfection, the eschatological uh, forever reality of God's redemptive purposes in the world. This is what he writes at the end of the book of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And then listen, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the destiny of the people of God. Not that Jesus just comes down and saves us in our sins, but he raises us up with him to seat with him over all creation so that we will reign and rule with him in the ages that come. Where am I in my notes? You guys got me all so excited here. Okay, so now let's turn again and look at how this vision, this second act of the ascent of the church relates to gender uh, relations. As we consider the typological relationship between men and women generally, and husbands and wives specifically, the archetypal reality is not merely a picture of Jesus condescending sacrificially to our level, but also uniting himself to us and raising us up to his own exalted place, which means that when men think about the use of their power in relation with women, it's not sufficient to merely use male power to protect women. That's only the first act of the play. The second act of the play asks men to use their strength to raise women to a place of mutual dignity and honor in the broader world. Human cultures need the contributions and insights of both men and women. Following only the first act of the play results in a sort of benign patriarchy where the paternalistic John Wayne stands protectively over the fragile, perhaps even childlike woman. Now, it's right and good that Mr. Wayne uses his strength to protect the damsel in distress. But if he never uses his strength to raise her up to a position of influence and agency, if he never uses his power to platform her voice or to make room for her insights, insights, then he leaves the woman as a sort of adult child. He has not, allowed the, he has not followed the full example of Jesus. So both women and men need to be careful here, I think, 
that we don't settle for just only the first act. I think Christian men can be tempted to settle for just the first act because the first act allows men to stay alone in the power position. Men can sometimes, not as often as they should, but sometimes be happy to be benevolent towards women, even sacrificially benevolent, but to raise women up to a place of equal dignity, to create a world where her voice is honored just as much as his own. Well, that's asking a bit much, some men might say. And I think Christian women can be tempted to settle for this first act only as well. Because quitting the play at the end of the first act gets them out of a measure of responsibility. Some women actually prefer being adult children who are taken care of by their menfolk. I think this was especially true in generations gone by. Not as much anymore, I don't think. I don't know this is as much of a problem. But I think the temptation can still be there, even for some women. In both cases, both men and women need to remember both acts of the play. All right, so we've been through the first two acts, the sacrificial descent of Jesus, the dignifying ascent of the church. And now we get to the play's exciting conclusion. Wait for it, wait for it, here it comes. The interdependent reign of both. For this final act, look back to our text here in Ephesians 1, 22 and verse 23. And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is reminding us that God has given Christ to the church as the church's head. But he's not just the church's head. He's the head of all things, which means that Jesus' rule and life extends beyond the confines of the church out into all of creation. But how does Christ extend his life, which is the life of God, out into the whole of creation? Well, Paul tells us here that he does it through the church. Look again at verse 23. The church is the body of Christ, and it is the church that is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is so important for us to see because Jesus fills up all of creation through the church, through his body. As the church expands with the life and power of Jesus, she takes the reign of God's love out into all of creation. And the whole of the Christian history, from the final day of Jesus on earth, right before his ascension, when he sent his disciples out into the world to make more disciples, all the way down to the present day, is a witness to the body of Christ extending the life of Christ. And the important point I want to make here as we think about this third act is that the church is not merely the conduit through which the divine life flows. It is the only conduit through which the divine life flows. The head of the church humbly chose it to be such that he has no dominion in the world apart from his body. 
It is the church that is the fullness of him that fills up all things. Which means, and now let this sobering, mind-spinning, and intoxicating truth sink all the way down to the depths of your soul. This means that ever since the incarnation, when Jesus wed himself to the church, he made himself dependent on the church. We have become one, and the head and the body now rise and fall together. There is no glory for Christ apart from the glory of the church. And there is no glory of the church apart from the glory of Christ. They have been wed together in a union of head to body and cannot be sundered. A head needs its body just as much as a body needs its head. So listen to these words from Andrew Murray, who was an author and a pastor from probably about 150 years ago or more. He writes this, A vine without branches can bear no fruit, but no less indispensable to the vine than the vine to the branch is the branch to the vine. Such is the wonderful condescension of the grace of Jesus that just as his people are dependent on him, he has made himself dependent on them. Without his disciples, he cannot dispense his blessing to the world. He cannot offer sinners the grapes of the heavenly Canaan. Marvel not. It is not his own appointment. It is, it is his own appointment and this high honor to which he has called his redeemed ones that as indispensable as he is to them in heaven, that from him their fruit may be found. So indispensable are they to him on earth that through them his fruit may be found. So what does all this mean then for gender relations? The interdependent relationship between Christ and the church calls us to recognize the interdependent relationship between the man and the woman. This is most obvious, of course, in the act of procreation. And men cannot keep the human species alive without women. But women cannot keep the human species alive without men. But it's not just for procreation that we need each other. Men and women are dependent upon each other in order to most fully be themselves as men and women. The necessity of each other as it relates to procreation is its own little sign that points to the greater reality that we need each other. We are both made in the image of God, and it takes both of us to image God in his fullness correctly. So here's one of the books that I recommended sitting out on the, on the table out there by a guy named Judd J. Bud Zuzuski. I like to call him J-Bud because that's simpler, so that's what I'll call him here. But he wrote a book called On the Meaning of Sex, and he wrote a paragraph, one of his chapters. He's talking generally about how men and women together come together to reflect the full picture of who God is. And he's, in this paragraph, he's, he's more narrow on fathers and mothers in the home, but the point he's making is broader than that. But he writes this. When all goes well, fathers and mothers also exemplify and specialize in different aspects of wisdom. A wise father teaches his wife and family that in order to love, you must be strong. And a wise mother teaches her husband and family that in order to be strong, you must love. She knows that even boldness needs humility, and he knows that even humility needs to be bold. 
Each of them refracts a different hue from the glowing light of royalty. A wise father knows when to say, ask your mother, and a wise mother when to say, ask your father. When they do this, they are not passing the buck, but sharing sovereignty. Now, I know that there are gender stereotypes and people are all resistant to gender stereotypes. And we don't always all fit into the narrowness of the gender stereotypes. But if you zoom back far enough and just look at man and woman writ large, man and woman do have different things to bring to our sovereignty, our mutual sovereignty in the world as images of God. And so what Jay Budd is writing here for fathers and mothers holds true then generally for men and women writ large. But so often we refuse to embrace this third act of the Christ church play. Both men and women have reasons for rejecting it. Men in their oppressive patriarchy have historically tried to minimize or suppress or outright deny their dependence upon women. Men tend to, I think this might be part of the reason, men tend to eschew vulnerability at all costs. So men, apart from Christ, maybe even in Christ, we're happy to use women for our own pleasures, maybe even happy to play the hero for them. But we don't like having to depend on them because that puts us in a position of vulnerability and we don't like to be vulnerable. But women teach men vulnerability because women move through, the, through life with a finely tuned sense of their own vulnerability and the vulnerability of others. And so as men make themselves vulnerable in relation to women, the act of making themselves vulnerable teaches them vulnerability. But the, but the women that they are making themselves vulnerable to who inherit and live out a particular kind of vulnerability also teaches men what it is to live with vulnerability. But it's not just men who reject the third act. With the rise of the feminist movements, women have returned the favor and have sought to minimize or suppress or outright deny any dependence upon men. Men and women are the same, goes the feminist claim. And thus women have no need for men. So again, back to old J. Bud. He writes here of this reality. He says, paradoxically, the notion that men and women are identical works against the very equality that it tries to uphold. The same are they? The same as what? Though with some dissimulation, identicalists almost always answer the same as men. Not only do men who despise women take this line, it is also taken by those so-called feminists who detest everything feminine, regard womanly women as traitors to the cause, and insist on an ideal which is supposedly indifferent to sex, but is actually masculine. From the same root springs those strange male fantasies about worlds of the future in which women lead armies, command starships, gun down enemies, and are ready for sexual intercourse at any moment. The underlying wish is that both sexes would be men, but that some of these men would look like women. I think that he's on to something there. Both male and female attempts to deny our mutual dependence are fundamentally misguided, and they prevent us from being all that we were created to be as men and women. And the attempt to deny our mutual dependence doesn't correspond with Christ and the church's mutual dependence upon each other. 
Men and women do need each other. And we do ourselves a disservice if we insist on going it alone. When I, as a man, deny the female voice, I hurt myself because I need the female voice as a man. And when you, as a woman, deny the male voice, you hurt yourself because you, as a woman, need the male voice. And this doesn't mean we all have to get married. That's part of the beauty of the church. In the church, we get to work out our mutual dependence as men and women on each other, not just as husbands and wives. So if you find yourself as a woman bristling at the idea that you need men in your life, or as a man bristling at the idea that you need women in your life, let me encourage you to take your bristly self over to Jesus and sit with him a while and let him talk to you. Because women, the church needs Jesus. And men... Jesus needs the church. We need each other. Let me close with two thoughts. The first of which will have most relevance for evangelical church-going people, which is most of us. This whole typological paradigm that I've been working from here both affirms and chastises the two main positions in evangelical churches on gender, complementarianism and egalitarianism. Complementarian accounts of gender emphasize gender difference and thus tend to enthusiastically advocate for the first act of the three-act play, Jesus' sacrificial descent on behalf of the church. But many complementarian paradigms often stall out there, and they don't advance to the second and to the third acts of the play. Jesus' dignifying exaltation of the church and the mutual interdependent reign of Christ and the church. And egalitarian accounts of gender tend to resonate with the second and third acts insofar as those two acts emphasize gender sameness and equality between the sexes. But the egalitarian paradigm tends to resist the foundational importance of the first act, Jesus' sacrificial use of his greater power on behalf of the more vulnerable church. If you cut out the first act, the acts that rest upon it also crumble and fall. We're going to be releasing a podcast in the coming weeks on this intramural debate, as it were, in evangelicalism, complementarianism, and egalitarianism. So if that's of interest to you, then stay tuned for that. And if you're new to Christianity or the church and you don't understand what those terms mean, don't worry about it. You just need to worry to this last point I'm about to make, which is the point that we all need to be worrying about truly. Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says this. He says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as the woman was made from the man, so man is now born of woman. And all things he says, are from God. Yes, Adam and Eve are interdependent, but all things are from God. All things depend upon God. The story of man and woman is not fundamentally about our dependence upon each other. Most truly, the story of man and woman is the story of our mutual dependence on Jesus. Our dependence on each other It's just an earthly type, an earthly sign, a little baby image that points beyond itself 
to the great reality of our mutual need for Jesus. He is the head of both women and men. He is the head of all things. If a man has Jesus and the church, he doesn't really truly need a woman. And if a woman has Jesus and the church, she doesn't really truly need a man. We do not complete each other. Jesus completes us. All of us find our spiritual life and meaning in him, not in each other. The whole story of the sexes and the gender struggles and powers is so often just a story of idolatry. We're trying to find our meaning in each other. And so we either reject each other outright or we latch onto each other desperately. But the meaning of our sexuality is not in our sexuality. The meaning of our sexuality points beyond it to Christ. He is the meaning of all things. So when we lay hold of him, we're laying hold of what our sexuality is all about and what it points towards. So let's not get hung up this morning or any morning trying to figure out how we need each other as men and women or don't need each other as men and women to the point that we lose sight of the fact that we all need Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus saw our need and he condescended to our need and he sacrificially met our need at great cost to himself. And then he put his life inside of us and he raised us up and he is raising us up to sit with him in the heavenly places in his own position of honor so that we can co-reign with him over all creation forevermore in the ages to come. Jesus is a kind and gracious king who has been beyond kind and gracious to us. So may we receive his grace and his kindness and his benevolent use of power sacrificially on our behalf that raises us up to be with him. And may we receive that and give that same thing to those that are around us, both men and women. Let's pray. Father, when we were stuck and could not find a way forward, and you made a way, and uh, we're so grateful for that. And I pray that you would help all of us here, both men and women, to recognize the great truth that all of us need you. We all need you. And may we find our life in you. May we find our breath in you. You are the one that completes us in Christ. So help us always to look to him in all things. And then in looking to him, may we live out our lives in whatever way he would direct. But God, may we find our fullest meaning in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.